Hello everyone and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Alaska is one of the few states I haven't visited, but I hope to get there someday soon. For many, it's still the last frontier, a land of wilderness and privacy for those seeking the quieter life. But as we've seen in the past, it's not always a land of safety. Today's episode includes a crime against a child, so listener discretion is advised. Before we get into this episode, let's quick cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. If you want to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. To many, Alaska is a land of wonderment and wild, untamed country. When gold was discovered near Nome in 1899, some of the estimated 100,000 miners that had arrived during the gold rush in the nearby Klondike set their sights on the future 49th state of the Union. As the men and women followed the Yukon River out of the Klondike, some arrived in an area north of Denali along a smaller river called the Tanana. One prospector found more than gold when he discovered several hot springs in the area. Denali is still growing due to tectonic activity, and those active faults allow hot water to come in contact with heated rocks deep underground, and the water arrives at the surface year-round at 136 degrees Fahrenheit or 58 degrees Celsius. After gold was discovered in the area, the hot springs were commercialized and offered warm soaks for tired travelers and prospectors. Two intrepid businessmen harnessed the springs and built a 50-room log hotel around them, offering year-round lodging and food and drink to people traveling by land and via the river. One of the men, going by the name Frank Manley at the time, named the area Manley Hot Springs. The town experienced moderate growth despite its remote location, and a U.S. Army telegraph station and trading post were established in the early 1900s. The nearby city of Fairbanks made travel to the Hot Springs and Hotel an easy trip by river in the summer and a two-day trip in the winter. But in 1913, the gold dried up and the impressive large log hotel caught on fire and burned to the ground. Of the 500 people who were thought to have called Manly Hot Springs their home around 1910, following decades saw all but 30 leave the area. The town maintained a small population and added a school in 1958, and a modern road was built connecting the town to Fairbanks the following year. The road was passable in the summer, but closed all winter, until snowplows started clearing the way during the winter of 1982. Two years later, one of the largest mass killings in Alaska would occur in this small town. This is the story of the Manly Hot Springs Massacre. Michael Allen Silka was born on August 20, 1958, in Illinois, and grew up in the suburbs northwest of Chicago. It was said that from a young age, Michael had a love for firearms and the outdoors. As a teenager, he was arrested by police in Des Plaines for trying to steal survival gear, including camping supplies and weapons from a sporting goods store. The crime was part of a plan that he and his brother had to run away and live off the land in Canada. Despite his arrest for attempting to steal the gear, the two boys did manage to run away in 1975 and lived in the Canadian wilderness until they ran out of supplies and returned to finish school. 
Just before graduating from high school, Michael was arrested on several occasions for walking through city parks with an antique muzzle-loading black powder rifle. He was forced to pay a $100 fine for his behavior. After graduating in 1977, and much to the agreement of several people, Michael joined the Army, where his love for the outdoors and firearms could be put to good use. He went to basic training where he qualified as expert during weapons training, and then went to school to become a helicopter mechanic. After his mechanic training, he was stationed at Fort Wainwright outside Fairbanks, Alaska, for the duration of his contract. Despite several run-ins with base military police, to include charges for assault and discharging his weapon in the barracks, or he achieved the rank of Specialist 4 and was discharged from the Army with an honorable discharge. So take a second here just to talk a little bit more about Michael's path to the Army and beyond. First off, this is another one of those cases. There's not a ton of information out there. There's maybe a handful of articles that cover this case, and in that handful of articles, there's split about 50-50 with some major differences between the articles. One of those major differences was the fact that it said that Michael had joined the Air Force to become an Air Force helicopter mechanic. Now again, this is what I often run into is it's more likely a lack of information on the part of the reporter journalist that's covering these stories that just makes certain assumptions because first off, there wasn't an Air Force helicopter mechanic job. Air Force almost exclusively deals in fixed-wing aircraft, and helicopters are almost exclusively used by the Army, so it wouldn't make sense to join the Air Force to become a helicopter mechanic. Now, I'm sure in some situations you do have helicopters working with the Air Force, but even his tombstone, which I found online, said U.S. Army Specialist 4, which is also a rank in the U.S. Army. So again, that's one of the problems with researching stuff, whether it be modern or historical, is I'm at the mercy often of these journalists to get the story right and work off the facts that exist in the story. So whenever I can, I try to put in the actual, what I believe to be the facts, and sometimes that means ignoring obvious mistakes in articles which may lead every once in a while to me making my own mistake but uh, ultimately Michael was said to be a troubled child now most of the articles I read kind of skipped over his childhood but there was one article where they went back and spoke to several people that went to school with Michael or grew up in the neighborhood now there were a couple neighbors that just said Michael was just an adventurous kid and maybe that was a nice way of of putting the fact that he lived on the edge kind of this fringe lifestyle of weapons and living in the outdoors and survivalism and militia and all that kind of stuff Uh, there are several other people who called it as it was and said he was a loner who had an obsession with firearms an obsession with violence from a young age and he often got in trouble at school was kicked out of school so as we often do with these cases you'll get people painting two very different pictures of somebody after a major event now this incident involving the sporting goods store again one article covered as oh, he was just arrested for theft so in my mind i was thinking that he walked into the store tried to load up a cart or a backpack full of gear and walk out 
with it. In another article, it said he was actually arrested for burglary. So he actually broke into this sporting goods store and was taking stuff in the middle of the night when no one was there and that he got caught. But somehow he was able to plea down from burglary charges to, I think it was just damage to property and maybe theft charges. So again, he's he's not your model citizen. He's, he's obsessed with this image of living off the land and and in most cases i have no issue with that it's just the problem that he seems to think that the laws and stuff don't apply to him and that's where i think a lot of his future issues are going to occur now what also surprised me as i mentioned earlier is that normally when you get in trouble in the military if you do something like discharge a weapon in inside of a of a barracks especially if it's unintentional or you get charged with some form of assault. Now, I understand this was the late 70s, early 80s, and things are probably a little little different, but when I was serving, I think one of our guys, while we were deployed here in the United States, he got a DWI, I wanna say, and they busted him down from, uh, I wanna say it was a specialist four rank down to like flat out private. I think they, they took away several levels of his rank because of a misdemeanor DWI that, that he was charged with. So the fact that he's able to be this quote-unquote troublemaker yet still obtain this rank of Specialist 4, again, it's either because the military was different back then and there wasn't as much punishment for committing crimes while serving, or you know somehow he, he managed to work his way around the system. And instead, he was an expert in both rifle and said something about grenade launcher which makes me think he was a what's called an m203 operator which is the 40 millimeter grenade launcher that will be mounted underneath the m16 platform weapon so when you join the military and you get assigned a weapon at least in the infantry you're assigned either just a the basic rifle you could be assigned the rifle with the m203 you could be assigned a light machine gun called the m249 or you could be part of a gun team and and carry the m240 but basically you get assigned your rifle and when you qualify that's what you qualify with so if you're carrying the m203 you're going to qualify with both the m16 and m203 so it said he qualified as expert with both again i don't think that plays too much the grenade launcher plays too much into the story but Qualifying expert with a rifle is not something that's easy to do. It's a pretty low percentage of people in the military that can qualify as experts. So he is going to be very good with a firearm, uh, and that's going to be unfortunate, as we're going to see. Michael returned to Illinois after leaving the Army and worked a string of construction jobs, returning to Alaska some years to work during the summer months. While in Illinois, he was stopped in November of 1982 and while walking up to Michael's vehicle, the officer noticed four weapons, a 44 caliber revolver, a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol, and two knives. He was arrested on weapons charges and brought to a police station to be booked, but he refused to get out of the squad car and was charged with obstruction after officers had to physically remove him. This led to him spending four days in the Cook County Jail. Nine months later, in July of 1983, he was stopped for speeding, and an officer noticed a 22 caliber rifle in the back seat of his vehicle. So again, we're going to see whether it was carrying this black powder rifle through the parks, these city parks, and, and getting arrested. Uh, he's driving around Illinois, and now 
Illinois is one of those states in the United States that has very strict gun laws. There's probably quite a few states that if he had been driving around with a 22 caliber rifle you know, on a gun rack on the back of his pickup truck, the officer wouldn't have thought twice about it, especially back in the early 1980s if we were down in Texas or up in Alaska or, or somewhere along there. But he's in Illinois, which has very strict weapons laws. And despite that, he's going to continue to drive around with, with weapons. Now, I'm not going to get too much into the psychology of things here. I am not a psychologist, but to me, there seems to be a pattern going on here of a feeling of superiority that Michael seems to have because he's able to carry around these weapons. Because to be honest, it's not worth the risk driving around Illinois with weapons out in plain view to be stopped by officers and, and arrested for. It's not as if Michael's a known gang member or a drug dealer that has to have these weapons on him to protect himself from, from rival gang members. As far as I know, he didn't have any quote-unquote enemies. So in reality, these guns for him clearly had to be some level of making him feel superior or something along those lines in order to risk all the criminal trouble that he's getting into by driving around with these in plain sight. Now for that second offense, the one with the 22 caliber rifle in the backseat of his vehicle, he was ordered to appear in court that fall, and he did attend several of the hearings, but after an October 26, 1983 hearing, he fled Illinois for Alaska and had an arrest warrant issued for him on December 20th. And even his history between leaving the army and this fleeing back to Alaska was very confusing between the articles I read. It seemed to be in a couple cases that I think it was Michael's brother they talked to said that he did return to Alaska to work these construction jobs. Uh, there's somebody else said that he had been in Alaska for a while before he returned to Illinois and got in trouble with the law. So he definitely maintained some level of connection between Alaska and, and Illinois during those years between the Army and the end of 1983. His exact travel itinerary isn't known, but Michael first came back on the radar in the area of Fairbanks, Alaska in the spring of 1984. He was sporting a large beard and on April 29, 1984, he was living in a cabin in nearby Hopkinsville. The newcomer had garnered suspicion from some of the older, longtime residents and when a moose hide went missing from a yard, Michael was an immediate suspect. So one thing we are going to find out, whether it's this Hopkinsville or where he's eventually going to end up in Manly Hot Springs, when we talk about small towns in America, in the lower 48, we're often talking about towns of you know, a thousand people. Somewhere between 500 and 5,000 people would be considered a small town in, in the lower 48 states. There's a lot of these places in Alaska and this Manly Hot Springs, 50 to 60 people. There, there's a lot of little small towns like that in Alaska that are literally five, six, a dozen families make up the town. And they are very close-knit. A lot of the times they're either related to each other or the generations have grown up next to each other for you know, 100 years at this point. So Alaska is one of those places that it's difficult to be a newcomer in. And I've heard of this also in places such as Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, some of these areas in the 
away from the larger cities, the really rural areas in the mountains that don't take kindly to, to new people that move in. It's, it's definitely that way in Alaska. And so when you have these older longtime residents and all of a sudden here in moves this mid-20s, scraggly, beard-looking, homeless kind of looking guy coming into the area and nobody knows anything about him. He doesn't have a history there. And then suddenly something like a moose hide going missing occurs. Everybody's going to assume that he's got something to do with it because, as I said, these people have grown up living next to each other for decades uh, you know, the last thing they're likely going to do is steal from each other. If, if somebody needs something from somebody else in one of these small communities, they're going to ask for it, and they're probably going to be given it in most cases. So this missing moose hide is going to draw a lot of attention for Michael. Now, the woman who had been hanging the moose hide to dry went to Michael's cabin to confront him. And when she arrived at the cabin, she saw two strange mounds of snow, and on a second visit, she saw what she thought was fresh blood. She contacted law enforcement and officers questioned Michael about a mound of snow and the fresh blood. Michael told the officers he had shot and butchered a moose and that accounted for the blood in the mound in the snow. The investigating officer had been sent there to check on his welfare and was under the impression Michael may have shot himself. So just by talking to Michael, he was able to clear up his call. So we're going to find out there's going to be some miscommunication at this point. I don't know that the story about the moose hide was relayed to law enforcement. There's about three or four different stories about how Michael came onto law enforcement's radar early on here. And the timing's going to be different in every one of those stories as well. So I did the best to kind of put them into one timeline, into one story. And again, you've got to be a pretty tough and brave person to live in the frontier of Alaska. So here you have this woman walking over to this you know, rather rough looking guy's cabin. He had rented this cabin just it was a month or so before this moose hide went missing. And she's just gonna go knock on the door and confront him. So again, I, I give her credit for being pretty dang brave because there's, there's a lot of people who wouldn't go knock on some stranger's door, especially when everybody is armed to the teeth to protect themselves from the wildlife and, and from other people up there. You know, they didn't really get into what these two mounds in the snow were. Now, this is still a time period in which they're getting quite a bit of snow in the area. So it could be as simple as he stole the moose hide and it's now buried underneath the snow. And that's one of the mounds of snow. But then the second time when she goes to see, you know, Michael must not have answered the door the first time or he wasn't around. She sees this fresh blood. And so the officers went over there, and it didn't sound like they are going over there to investigate the stolen moose hide. It sounds like they're going over there to check the welfare of Michael, believing it's possible that he could have accidentally shot himself or somehow injured himself and potentially needed help. So basically, they're going to knock on the door. He's going to stick just about his head out of the door, tell him that he's okay and that, no, he had shot his own moose and butchered it, and that's where the blood is, and that's what the mound is, and... The officers are going to say, okay, well, Michael's fine. He didn't shoot himself, didn't hurt himself at all. That makes sense why there'd be a mound of snow out here with some blood on it. So we're out of here. But it would be a week later that neighbors in the area reported a man named Roger Culp missing. Roger was Michael's neighbor and witnesses had seen Roger going to Michael's cabin with Michael and then heard what they thought was eight gunshots. Investigators returned to Michael's cabin with a search warrant on May 8th, but Michael had fled the cabin. 
Crime scene technicians tested the blood and found it to be human blood, and Michael is now wanted for questioning on the whereabouts of Roger and what happened the day Roger went into his cabin. So this is interesting because there are what we call presumptive tests for blood that a lot of crime scene technicians are trained in. The most common one is one called phenolphthalein, and that will just tell you whether a red, reddish-brown looking stain is or isn't blood. It's not going to tell you if it's human blood. You actually have to get a whole nother more expensive test to determine whether or not it's human blood versus animal blood. But the crime scene technicians, at least they're aware of this in advance. It wasn't a question of whether or not it was blood. It was a question of whether or not it could be human blood. And this is pre-DNA, so of course they're not going to be able to test it against Roger's blood or determine if it's potentially Michael's blood at this point. They're just going to be able to say what Michael was telling them cannot be true because the blood that he claimed was moose blood was actually human blood. And between that and the delayed information in regards to Roger last being seen going into Michael's cabin and somebody hearing eight gunshots, they're unfortunately behind the eight ball when it comes to investigating Michael for Roger's murder. Now, investigators are faced with the immense challenge of finding Michael in the vast wilderness of Alaska. He had a multi-day head start and had access to firearms. What they didn't know was that Michael hadn't traveled far, and after leaving his cabin, he drove to the town of Manly Hot Springs to lay low for a while. And what I mean by a multi-day head start and an immense challenge is, if he had driven in just about any other direction, mainly north or east, he can't really go south because that's into, into Denali and there's not really i don't think a way for him to get too far at this point in the year through the mountain range so he's really limited as to going northeast or west and he picks west and manly hot springs is is the end of the road going west the road that they built that they in the mid 1900s that they now serviced year round it's it's a dead end in manly hot springs so it's not as if he's going to be able to drive to Manly Hot Springs and then keep going. And we'll talk about it later, but I think he basically trapped himself in this town and realized he needs to lay low in this in this little town because it's it's only I want to say it was like a half day drive if that away from Fairbanks. So it's not like he, you know, kept driving and driving and driving putting distance between himself and and this murder. He drove as far as he could, which wasn't very far and he ends up settling into this town. And it's also possible he's driving this old beat up, they call that a 1972 Dodge. So it's also possible his biggest fear is breaking down on the side of the road and having a trooper come along with knowing that he has this arrest warrant out of Illinois for the weapons charges. And now he's looking at being investigated for murder if his vehicle breaks down on on the highway in the middle of nowhere he's kind of sol in terms of his ability to, to potentially escape these charges so it's possible he wasn't familiar with the area it's possible that he feared his vehicle breaking down it's it's possible he just drove until he couldn't drive anymore but he did drive into this new town canoe tied to his car and a lot of camping gear Initially, residents of the town admired the young, strong, and seemingly capable man who arrived in their small village. While keeping their distance, they noticed he liked to go for canoe rides on the river, and he set up a tent near the boat landing in town. Now, it was later said that these canoe rides were actually potential 
escape attempts on his part. Like he loaded up the canoe with as much gear and weapons as he could, and he was going to use the current of the river to to go further away from Fairbanks, uh, further away from where he was wanted, and and potentially set up some type of a rudimentary cabin or shelter somewhere in, in the middle of nowhere to hide out but the problem was it was still early enough in spring that the river had a lot of ice flow still on it and he had to return back to this boat landing back to his car because he couldn't safely navigate the river in his canoe so what looked like this guy that was just happy about camping and going out on the river with his canoe and that kind of stuff was actually a guy who was trying to figure out a way to escape authorities. And as the, the first few days passed, Michael became friendly with the locals, telling them he planned on being a mountain man and living off the land. He showed off his marksmanship skills and many people saw him as a harmless and rugged addition to the area. And, and again, just because people aren't welcoming of newcomers doesn't mean that somebody can't earn their spot there and again this is a pretty rugged looking guy he's young he's strong he has survival skills he has wilderness skills I mean, there's a big difference between somebody coming from a urban or suburban environment and thinking they can live off the land up in alaska or buying some property up in alaska and moving in and thinking they belong versus a guy who looks like he belongs so He's probably gained at least a little bit of acceptance from this small village because of just his looks and his his repertoire of survival skills and stuff. But then on Thursday, May 17th, two men had gone to the boat landing. 37-year-old Vietnam vet Larry McVeigh and 24-year-old Dale Medaski. They were only supposed to be gone for a few hours, so by afternoon, their wives drove to the boat landing to see what was keeping their husbands busy. When they arrived, they noticed Larry's boat was still on the trailer and their beer was still in the truck. Wives knew if the boat and truck were there, the men should be there, and they would have never left the area without their beer. The woman also noticed a car belonging to a 27-year-old local named Albert Hagen Jr. Albert was, had been visiting his parents in Manly and had told them he was going down to the landing with some brush that he had cleared up that had built over the winter months. As the women couldn't believe anything could happen to all three men, they surmised the men must have taken advantage of the unusually warm May weather they were having and headed out somewhere together. So again, this is a small-knit community. We're going to learn this Albert Hagen Jr. Uh, he's 27. He spent his whole childhood in Manly growing up, left for California, but was back for about six weeks at this point, visiting his parents and, and hanging out and helping them with the their homestead and stuff so he's gonna know this 24 year old dale madaski potentially and he's very likely gonna know this 37 year old vietnam vet larry mcveigh so in a small town a small village it's possible two guys had plans together a third didn't but he meets up and they walk you know invite him to go along and do something with them enjoy the nice weather uh, so the women don't think too much of it at first and figure that the guys will show up that evening. But as noon the next day approached, the worry turned to genuine fear as the three men were still missing. A search party from the town was organized, and it was then that people noticed more people were unaccounted for. A family of three named the Kleins was also missing. Initially, people had assumed that they had taken a boat ride up the river to a second home they often visited, 
but a check of their main home revealed the family dog had been left behind. The Klein family always took the dog or asked someone to look after it, and no one had been contacted to watch over the dog. So this Klein family, it's its a husband, a wife, and their two-year-old son. Again, they don't have, as far as I knew, any other relatives or people they were in they had plans with so when they go missing and they it's ultimately going to be learned that they go missing on that thursday may 17th as well when they're noticed missing friday may 18th it's because the whole village is basically showing up to search for these three missing men and when the whole village gets together and this family that everybody knows doesn't show up to help they at first surmise that's because the family isn't around they must have you know, gone to this other place they had, but when they go check the house, figure out where the clients are at, and they find the dog there, that makes them a little more suspicious that something may have happened to this family as well. So some members of the search party went back to the boat landing and wanted to double check the vehicles parked there to see if anyone had returned. They located Michael's car by the boat landing, but Michael was nowhere to be found, and people began to wonder if the self-proclaimed mountain man might be involved in all the disappearances. So again, I'm picturing typical boat landing. This is where people can launch a boat, recover a boat, and use that boat on the river to travel up and down the river. This river leads all the way to Fairbanks and off into the wilderness, so people will use it to go off hunting and bring food back to the town. So it's it's a pretty popular place, and this search party is wisely going to go back to this boat landing to see, hey, did Albert's car move? Did Larry's truck move? Is there something different about this boat landing today than there was yesterday to see if there's been any activity at the boat landing that can be accounted for? And I'm sure at first when the women who went looking for their husbands saw Michael's car there, they really didn't think much of it because the whole town knew that Michael was living in a tent by the boat landing. But now that this car is still there, the tent's still there, and Michael's not around, they're starting to wonder, we've got a bunch of missing people and a new person who's also missing, could he be involved? So the searchers returned to town on Friday evening and a call was placed to the Alaska State Troopers advising them of the missing townspeople, and they provided the license plate for Michael's car. The plate was run through the system and it was discovered that Michael was wanted for questioning and Roger's murder. A tactical team consisting of troopers traveling by vehicle and helicopter was activated in Fairbanks, and they set out for Manly Springs in the very early morning hours of May 19, 1984. The troopers that arrived by vehicle created a roadblock outside of town on the only road that serviced the small community, and the helicopter responded to a clearing by the boat landing. The rotor wash from the helicopter blew some fresh snow off the area near the boat landing, and areas of what appeared to be blood and drag marks towards the river became visible. Several spent cartridge cases littered the ground and it appeared someone had done a lot of shooting at the boat landing. The Klein family ATV was discovered in the woods nearby and someone had covered it in brush to make it hard to see from the landing itself. Larry's hat was also found in the landing area. So these initial searchers, they're not going to see the ATV. They're not looking for a vehicle that's covered in brush off in the the dense forest. Um, And they're not originally going to see this blood and these drag marks that's covered by the fresh snow or these spent cartridge cases. So what began as kind of a people disappeared into nowhere, they're starting to realize it's highly likely people were shot and then drugged down to the river and then somebody went through the effort of hiding this ATV. 
Now, there's only really two theories that make any sense here. Uh, again, this is a dead-end town, and everybody knows anybody coming in and out of this town. So had some killer arrived by vehicle, driven to the boat landing, killed all these people, then left, somebody would have known about it. So the only two options are really Michael had something to do with it, or somebody arrived to the boat landing with a boat, got out, killed everybody, got back in their boat, and then left. And I think if Michael hadn't been looked at for Roger's murder, I think they might have assumed that somebody showing up by boat and, and killing Michael as well might have been a more viable of the two options. But being that they know that Michael is already wanted for murder, he's got a warrant out for weapons charges, he's known to carry a lot of weapons, and he was living at the boat landing where a lot of people appeared to have been shot and then thrown into the river they're going to lean more towards they need to find michael so desperate to find the missing people or michael the helicopter took to the sky and started scanning the riverbanks and trails in the area they came across a woman waving frantically to get their attention she told them that her husband 30 year old fred burke had gone to town on thursday and never came back he was the seventh person missing from a town of only 60 people the way i understood this is i think fred traveled to town via boat so he drove his boat to the boat landing instead of a vehicle and as they're scanning the riverbanks of the helicopter my guess is this family lived in an area that was easier to access town via boat and so when they came across this woman you know the, the main boat the family uses is gone it's her her husband took it to town two days ago and they, she hasn't seen him it's very unlikely that they have a way to communicate. So this was literally the only reason they found out this Fred Burke was missing is because the helicopter was out looking and this woman flagged him down. Now it did also say in another article that this search was incredibly difficult because it was bear hunting season. And there was, so there was a lot of guys out on boats on the river with weapons looking to, to go hunting. So to isolate just one person out there with a weapon amongst all of these hunters along the river and that kind of stuff was it, it made it a much more difficult task than one would originally think where they would just need to go down the river till they find the first person with a gun and that's going to be michael so this is not an easy search but they are able to find out that they're also going to be looking for this fred burke and his boat and fred is the seventh person missing from a town of only 60 people so over 10 percent of the town now is missing and by now the troopers had learned more about Michael Silka. They learned he was a military trained, that he was well armed with several firearms and had run-ins with law enforcement in Illinois, Canada, and Alaska. And a well-armed, well-trained suspect in heavy cover and is, is an extremely dangerous person, especially if they feel threatened or cornered. And, and I say that because it's a lot easier to defend a situation than it is to attack it. In the military, it's often said, you want a three to one ratio if you're going to attack a fixed position or you're gonna encounter extreme casualties because one person with a rifle in cover can pick off a lot of people that are trying to attack their location. Now, eventually, if you send enough people after that one person, you will likely win the battle overall, but you're gonna lose potentially a lot of police officers if you've got a guy who's a great shot, who's well-trained, and he's able to set himself up in, in the woods in some type of a heavy cover situation. 
However, despite this, one of the troopers would later say that he felt the troopers were overconfident. Many of them were Vietnam veterans, and they'd recently attended a training put on by LA SWAT trainers. And they were equipped with tactical vests and assault rifles and felt between superior numbers and an air and ground approach, they could locate and apprehend Michael without too much trouble. And this is really one of those situations that we'll we've covered before with law enforcement is sometimes law enforcement can get overconfident. They can assume that a situation is going to resolve itself. And I'm not saying that they went into this without any idea that this could be difficult, but even this, this trooper that was involved in this thought when they look back upon it, they felt that this was one of those situations where it was just going to work itself out. They had more officers, they were well armed so this was just a guy out potentially on a boat and and shouldn't present too much of a danger it's not a guy who has lived in a location and set up a bunker or anything like that there and then the woman who reported her husband fred missing told the troopers that her husband's boat was missing as well so with michael nowhere to be found by the boat landing the troopers focused their search on the river assuming that michael had traveled up river away from fairbanks and into the wilds so Again, this is where they're looking for a boat with a guy with weapons, and it's difficult because of all these bear hunters and that kind of stuff out in the area. Eventually, the choppers did locate Michael, and he was operating Fred's stolen boat, which was towing his canoe. From the air, the troopers could see that Michael had several long guns in the canoe, and they made a plan to surround him with the helicopters and divide his attention. And we have to remember, this is, once you get away from Manly, especially to the west, you're not finding any roads or ways to access. So this this dual air and ground approach is going to turn into a pretty much just an air approach. Now, one thing that I kind of questioned afterwards is if they know the river is so important, I didn't read anything about boats, but it seems to me that some type of a water approach would have been very helpful as well, something where they could have either approach from a distance or set up some type of a sniper situation from land and the only way they're going to access that is is via a boat i mean they do have the helicopters but the helicopters were army surplus helicopters and i think they would only fit the the pilot the co-pilot and then two tactical team members one on either side of of the helicopter so it's not like you're going to be able to bring in a team of eight guys uh, via helicopter even if you're going to drop off guys via helicopter it's going to take a few trips to get enough uh, to get an arrest team built up so they kind of have this plan but at the same time it's it's a very susceptible plan and the one thing they're trying to do is they're trying to surround them with these helicopters and and the divided attention thing it's something that military and police train in a lot is shouldn't see two police officers standing shoulder to shoulder engaged with a suspect because if that suspect decides that they want to shoot those officers it's a lot easier to pay attention focus on and eventually fire at two officers that are right next to each other the reason officers spread out and you see situations like on felony vehicle stops officers that are some distance away from each other one on the on each side of the suspect is so that suspect can't focus their attention on on just one area they're either going to have to be looking back and forth or if they do focus on one area they're not going to see what's going on out of that other area so i think this was part of the plan of the helicopters you could 
have one team in one direction, one team in the other direction. It's, it's much more difficult to defend from multiple angles. In the meantime, while they're getting this set up, Michael knows he doesn't stand a chance of attacking the troopers from his boat. So he goes ashore and grabbing a rifle from the canoe and he aims it at the helicopter. He fired several shots at the helicopter from a position of cover and the pilot recognized Michael now had the advantage. So as the pilot backed the helicopter away to create distance, Michael continued to fire. One of his shots hit 34-year-old Trooper Duncan in the neck, killing him instantly. Trooper Duncan's partner, seeing his buddy get hit, returned fire with an M16 rifle and emptied the entire 20-round magazine and fully automatic at his partner's killer. Eight of the bullets struck Michael and killed him instantly. The carnage was over, but the investigation of what had happened had just begun. And there was about four or five different recreations of this firefight, depending on which article you read. Ultimately, you know, Michael's able to at least fire several shots at the helicopter. One of these shots hits and kills 34-year-old trooper Troy Duncan. And at the same time, the return fire is able to kill Michael instantly. So despite their plans, despite hopefully solving this peacefully, Michael wasn't going to go peacefully. The investigation revealed that Michael most likely started the killing after he stole the moose hide outside Fairbanks. When confronted by Roger Culp about the theft, Michael lost his temper and shot and killed the man. Roger's body was never been recovered, but he was last seen walking to Michael's cabin and the witness heard eight gunshots. And after his close call with investigators looking into his bloody snow mounds, Michael likely packed his vehicle and fled the area, knowing police would eventually connect the dots between his cabin and Roger's disappearance. So between Fairbanks and Manly, Another eyewitness saw Michael with two people in his car, and these people gave a look of utter horror to the eyewitness as they drove by, but they have never been identified. Alaska, even to this day, is a refuge for those running away from life, and it's more likely than not that the couple were killed by Michael as no one has ever come forward and claimed to have spoken with Michael before the Manly Hot Springs Massacre. So this is one of those things he's said to have killed nine people. Some people believe he killed these two people as well that his numbers might be in the double digits and, and there's others that went missing from the area during these days after Michael killed Roger. So there's some that believe that Michael killed more people leading up to the massacre. Uh, but there's no proof of it, but there's also nobody coming forward saying, yeah, we were with this guy. This is what he was saying before the massacre. And maybe that's because the people didn't want to be recognized maybe the people never heard of it but this was a pretty big deal up in alaska so you would think that if you had any contact with michael before this massacre you would have come forward and said something now, after fleeing fairbanks it's believed michael thought manly was small enough to lay low for a few days and as i mentioned before it's a dead-end road so if he left manly he would have to head back towards fairbanks where law enforcement was likely looking for him he managed to get along with people for the first couple of days, but it is believed that on Thursday morning, Larry and Dale came across Michael at the boat landing, and somehow an argument broke out. Maybe Larry and Dale took exception to something Michael was doing, but the argument turned deadly as Michael shot and killed Larry and Dale. It is then surmised that the Klein family rode up on their ATV while Michael was disposing of bodies, and Michael shot all three members and then hid their ATV. Sometime before, during, or after these shootings, both Fred Burke and Albert Hagen Jr. arrived at the boat landing and were shot and killed. Police believe Fred may have been the last one killed and was killed for his boat, the same one Michael was traversing the river with when troopers located him. The breakdown of the victims is as follows. 
Michael's first victim was believed to be 34-year-old lumberjack Roger Culp, who had gone to Michael's cabin outside Fairbanks to confront him about the stolen moose hide, and then he was shot and killed. His body was never found. On the morning of Thursday, May 17th, Larry Joe McVeigh, a 38-year-old disabled Vietnam vet who had suffered severe burns after setting up a booby trap during the war, and his friend, 24-year-old Dave Majetsky, a Michigan native who moved to Alaska to build cabins, were the first two people from Manly believed to be killed by Michael. Their bodies were eventually recovered from the river. The Klein family consisted of 30-year-old Joyce Klein, who was four months pregnant when she was killed, 36-year-old Lyman Klein, and their two-year-old son, Marshall. They had gone to the boat landing that day to enjoy the nice weather, the boat ride on the river. Lyman's body was found, but the rest of his family has never been recovered. 27-year-old Albert Hagen Jr. had left Alaska after graduating high school and lived in California for 10 years. He had just returned six weeks earlier to visit his parents and had been bringing brush from his parents' house to the boat landing when he was killed, and his body was never located. 30-year-old Fred Burke was shot and killed for his boat. His wife found his body 75 miles downstream from the boat landing after the murders. And now I will say the articles listed Fred as both 27 years old and 30 years old, so... I went with 30 years old, but it's also possible Fred was 27 when he died. And 34-year-old Alaska State Trooper Troy Duncan was the last person killed by Michael. The newspaper said he was a USMC, so the United States Marine Corps, and an Army veteran, and had been serving with the troopers for three years. He was only the third trooper in their history to be shot and killed in the line of duty, and he was survived by his wife and two children. Michael Silka was cremated and buried with full military honors in the National Cemetery in Sitka, Alaska. This caused a lot of controversy as the cemetery is situated right next to the Alaska State Trooper Training Academy. It was a burial that Michael was entitled to via his military service, and his father thought that Michael would want to be buried in Alaska, but in reality it's just an entirely unfortunate situation. The town of Manly took many years to recover from the massacre. A small summer resort opened in the town in 1985, but it closed in 1997. The town remains small and close, but to this day they are understandably wary of outsiders. And that is the story of the Manly Hot Springs Massacre. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.